Welcome back and thank you very much. It's time for Neuro and there's no better place for Neuro than Addenbrooke's Cambridge University. And there's no better than Ronan O'Leary and tomorrow David Menon. Ronan, you're a friend. You are the specialty lead for neurosciences and trauma at the Cambridge University Hospital and Addenbrooke's, trained in Leeds, Birmingham, Melbourne. You're a consultant intensivist, and you are going to be involved in a very interesting session tomorrow, including a pro-con debate. But let's go back. What have you enjoyed from the conference so far? What are you taking away? And what are the points that everyone else should know about? Yeah, hi there. Um, And thanks for inviting me. And congratulations on this podcast. It's fantastic development in our community. Thank you. Um, I think the the thing I've enjoyed most is the thing I've just walked out on. It's a talk by a colorectal surgeon from Bristol on shared decision-making in cancer surgery, and that's not something which naturally finds a place for intensivists, particularly neurointensivists. I spend a lot of my time thinking about our responsibility to make decisions on behalf of our patients, and often we do that around their li- the end of their lives and you know what level of disability and so on they would tolerate when, when they complete their journeys with us. The talk I just listened to is very inspiring in that society as a whole expects us to make shared decisions with our patients about the consequences of the treatment we provide to them and for them and that should encompass everything we do and and one of the things I'm troubled with about how we treat subarachnoid hemorrhage and delayed neurological deficit afterwards and so on is that there's so little evidence about it but the burden of disability and death after these diseases is so great that every single decision we should we should ask ourselves is this what the patient would really want me to do? Because we're in a situation where we can't make shared decisions with them. We have to make those decisions on behalf of them whilst at the same time providing treatment for them. Taking the model of shared decision-making into that paradigm of how we make those decisions, I think is something I'll take forward from the conference. Wow, that's incredible humility to start with. And <laughs> we, we play on a, a field with two scary goalposts, don't we, at, at each end of the pitch. One is... If I do this, they may survive to have devastating, let's say, brain injury in the case of neuro-ICU. And we talked to Dan Harvey about that. The flip side being, I don't want to give up on people. I want to give them a chance. Heck, I want their family to have a chance to say goodbye. I, I want to know we did the right thing. And that's the world we live in. And, and so you're talking about colorectal surgery. I think you've already made the point implicitly. It doesn't matter what part of the body we're talking about. It's very difficult and critical illness yeah and i think i think intensivists are probably in a very difficult situation purely because we we provide this treatment to patients which is complex and sophisticated and in many areas still lacks evidence and the, the sort of understanding around it's still very immature but we're also rarely for physicians in a position of holding the patient's interest in our heads as well you know it's it's, it's not very common for other doctors to have to provide treatment and provide decision-making about the patient's best interests. The more I do of intensive care, the more I'm troubled by their best interests rather than I'm troubled by evidence and randomised control trials and those kind of things. I think it's a great realisation that so many of us come to. This this is your podcast, not mine, but uh, I'm the son of a palliative care counsellor and I'm the son of a biochemist. The longer I do this job, the more it's about mum, the counsellor, and her lessons, and no disrespect to dear old dad, but it's less the empiric science that he taught me. Um, you know, I've heard our job described as the most scientific of the humanities and the most humane of the sciences. It, it probably is writ large. It's nice to have a conference where all of those things are on the table for discussion. Yeah, and I think, I think it's also a reflection of maturity of our speciality. And I think some of that has been brought about by the pandemic in that, you know, it was such an overwhelming experience in every sense of that word that it's forced us to think about exactly our purpose, why we're here and what we're trying to achieve. And, and I, I, 
in myself and also in the profession and speciality, I feel that's been a watershed moment for all of us in terms of where we're coming from and where we ultimately want to head up. Bravo. Couldn't couldn't agree more. Now, do we pivot from that to tomorrow's session? Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how I started so heavy. I normally have some oh, I have some oh, oh. normally have some really bad innuendo or poor joke to make. Oh, we've got we've got plenty <laughs> of time for puns. Um I mean, the rest is going to be a no-brainer, let's be honest. <laughs> hey, thank you. Uh it's going to be a great session tomorrow. There's going to be discussion of big data. There's going to be a pro con. Let's talk about your pro con. This house believes that hemodynamic augmentation is beneficial in the syndrome of delayed ischemic neurologic deficits for aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage. Did I get that? Yeah, that's that's it. And it's, it's a snappy one, and I'm sort of feeling pretty wounded already because last night Sarah Marsh, who's a uh, consultant intensivist in Harrogate and a friend of mine from my training days, pointed out that it wasn't a great crowd pleaser as a topic. So I'm feeling pretty uh, pretty bruised going into it. But I think the point is, is that we've, we've got next to nothing we can do for these patients. And that's, and that's overstating it. You know, that they, they, we really struggle to know how to manage these patients with devastating brain injuries who go on to have very difficult lives full of disability. One of the things we do for them is this belief that by raising the blood pressure using vasoactive medication, we can overcome neurological deficit occurring after subarachnoid hemorrhage. And it turns out there's no evidence for it. It turns out what evidence there is possibly is that it's harmful. And it also is possible it distracts us from other things that we could be doing for those patients. So there's an opportunity cost in terms of either delaying time to rehabilitation, acquiring complications of critical illness and stay in ICUs, or potentially missing other treatable conditions, you know, because we've, we've substituted all those conditions into phasospasm, and, uh, and, we, and we reach for the NORAD and we push up the blood pressure. Now, I love a good pro-con, bit of theatre, bit of crowd engagement, dodgy jokes, as you point out. But let's be honest, you and Lara are valued colleagues who respect each other. And outside of the theatre, it's all about trying to work out iteratively what we can do for a neuro-injured patient. She's not going to hear this ahead of the debate, so you won't lose any bullets here. What's she right about that you're shaky about? So we were, we were texting about this today, actually, because we're both struggling to get our slides in order and sorted out. And I think we both come to the conclusion that there is no real pro and con to this. That The landscape is so empty of evidence or even a, a, a satisfactory physiological model of how to manipulate blood flow to the brain after subarachnoid hemorrhage. So I, I, it's probably somewhere where you can't truly have a pro-con debate in the same way you could about therapeutic hypothermia or you could about decompressive craniectomy or any of these other big questions in neurocritical care. I don't think there's enough landscape on which we can construct decent arguments around this. You know, it's a very, very difficult thing to debate in a rational way, I think, because it's so lacking in evidence. So I've heard it argued that there's the science, there's the art, and there's the engineering of medicine. Yeah. There's what the papers tell us, there's what we have gained through experience, consciously and competently, or incompetently consciously. And then there's engineering, fail-safes, doing things the same way every time, making sure you have a functional team that works with you. What do you think the secret source for neuro is? It's an expansive question, admittedly, but how much science, how much art, how much engineering? I think, I think that's the fundamental question of, of, of what faces neurointensivists at the moment. And the answer is that it's all engineering of systems, wherever you want to describe it. We can't make progress with the patients we're treating whilst we have variations in care, highly individualised treatment, uh, ad hoc processes of diagnosis and 
uh, treatment algorithms that vary between hospitals and within hospitals. It's a fundamentally, it's, an, it's a process engineering problem that we have to solve first. And once we've done that, then we can understand where the patient's variations and outcome come from. We can't tease those two out because we, we haven't got the processes in place. So we know the predictable problem to post-subarachnoid if we use the discussion that's going to be tomorrow of sodium shifts and vasospasms and rebleeds. And so if we don't have evidence, how do we standardize things? Because how do you square the circle of eminence-based medicine and evidence-based medicine if you want to engineer it? Yeah, just to address that question from a different way, we haven't struggled to answer that in things like ventilator care bundles vascular access care bundles, DVT prophylaxis, mandatory standards that are delivered at nationwide levels, TXA administration, despite the recent trial, now gets given to all trauma patients in the UK at the time of injury effectively. We're, we're able to design out variations in care very effectively within our health systems. The issue isn't so much evidence versus eminence. That, that the, the, the issue is we we haven't got a system on which to make decisions about evidence versus eminence. You know, we're, we're, we're way ahead of running before we can walk. I think you've made a very useful point then for neuro ICU because it sounds like a lot of good neuro ICU is just manage the rest of the patient. It is, I think. And I think, I think the, the, that David Menon makes a fantastic point. I'll misquote it, so you'll have to get the quote off him tomorrow and then splice it into my talk somehow. <laughs> you'll have to get him to impersonate my voice or something. But he makes this point that the standards of critical care for neurocritical care should be as high if not higher with as few variations in care and meticulous attention to extracranial physiological detail before you can do neurocritical care properly and I think that's exactly the way to look at it. So should neuro ICUs be freestanding or should they be underneath larger general systems ICUs because so much of it is getting the general care of the patient right or am I going into politics let alone engineering no I I'm a firm believer in the model of huge ICUs where all patients with critical illness get collected and within that there's specialist interest groups and specialist processes of cares and all that kind of stuff but there's so much benefit from standardization and reductions in variation care across critical illness that, that uh, I don't see a future for standalone single organised ICUs. Thank you. That's useful to hear. Okay, it's the end of the afternoon. I'm going to start skiing off piste, as they say in Canada. Um, how do we get people excited about neuro ICU? I like it, you like it, others like it. But you know what? It, it has a little bit of an image problem compared to the glory of transplant and the glory of heart surgery. Yeah, it does. And I think I wrestle with that a bit because we've got, you know, recruitment problems everywhere around the world and so on. One of the problems I think we have to be honest about, and this is this is now going off piece and Dan Ravine, is, <laughs> is the emotional burden that neurocritical care places on doctors. And when you're dealing with diseases like traumatic brain injury, like... Um, peripartum neurovascular diseases uh, like stroke uh, and like subarachnoid hemorrhage you're dealing with devastating consequences across generations of families and you're often talking to people younger than you who've got children who are going to die as a consequence of their brain injuries or you're talking to people about the enormous burden of disability and how their life's going to change when a patient survives critical illness my sense is we instinctively feel that is hard and going to be a difficult career and we shy away from it even at a subconscious level. We can't ameliorate that, but I think we probably can ameliorate within how we design careers, job plans, 
working patterns and so and support networks within hospitals and within units we can ameliorate some of the consequences of that within within the professional groups i think it brings us right back to your original point though the social concerns that go or not social the empathic concerns the value concerns of the patient uh in other words yes the physiology is terribly exciting but if you don't deal with the emotional ramifications if you don't feel a sense of meaning that you're helping patients and helping families that i know can i use the b word can i use the burnout word i mean that's where the the exhaustion with the profession comes from or that's where the short career of 10 or 15 years comes from um speaking for myself I think we have to use the word burnout, honestly, and I think, I think we probably, the, the binary thing of burnout versus not burnout probably never exists within any of us. I think we really exist in a gradient of being able to work despite the effects of work and then not able to work effectively despite the effects of work and then not able to work full stop. And we, and we hope to stay towards, you know, the, the first bit of that description rather than the last bit. I, I, I like the Australian model. So people my age in Australia are going into their sabbaticals. They're having... Right. Those sabbaticals may be paid and they just go on holiday or they may be in an academic environment where they do purely do research or they go to a different country and so on. And that's, we, we, we need those career breaks. We need to build in ways that people can decompress themselves. And it's not just, you know, GP signing you off for five days. It's, it's six months, 12 months, 18 months sort of periods in a totally different but productive because none of us want to sit at home. We need something productive. We need to have our hands occupied. We need to be making something, building stuff. Yep. But we have to take it out of the clinical environment. Well, we've, we've found utter fascination at this conference talking to people about their hobbies and their supposed eccentricities, but they're not. You can see exactly how they help them re-engage and, yeah. and, and, and make sense of the, the chaos and the, the madness and the eccentric experience that they see at work, given it's weird stuff we see that, that we're not necessarily built for as humans. No, and I think there's probably a cost-effective argument that we, we have to make as intensivists. But, you know, if you just think for the sake of argument, 20 to 30% of it don't complete a career in intensive care full-time right to the end of our working lives, then, then, there's, a, then there's a loss at some point to that. If we swap that loss at the end to a year off doing research or whatever it might be every five years, you may find a cost-effective argument very easy to make. I think you're very right. Invest six months now and you'll do another five years yeah, exactly. for that yeah, investment. Yeah. We've done a very poor job in Canada, I think, of working out how to give that time off. There, you can get time off from the university, but you have to apply for a sabbatical. And then you have to either, between you and I, lie about what you're going to do yeah. on your sabbatical, fabricate a report when you get back, or be sort of filled with a sense of shame that you're actually going to take time off and just learn to, how to play the guitar and surely that's yeah, good enough. Yeah. Yeah. How are things in the NHS? Well, we're currently engaged in, a, uh, we had a, this has been recorded the day after the consultants in the UK have voted yes, to strike. Yes, let's go there next. <laughs> so I think I'll answer the question in that way. Please, please. Yeah. No, no, no. It's, what a great topic, eh? Yeah. We're under the strike already. I, 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 don't, I don't think the UK health and consultant workforce is in a good place across the board. And in an environment of inflation running around 10% and 5% pay rises, trying to argue for a year off work, learning how to play the guitar every five years is going to be a struggle, I think. Yeah. Uh, to, to put it mildly, I would imagine, yeah. yes, bean counters aren't going to care for your uh, ability to pluck chords. But just, if I may just interrupt a second there, just to extend that, I think the responsibility sits with us to articulate that in evidence-based terms, and we haven't been great at that. We, we recognise we have these problems within our speciality and profession, but we haven't been great at describing them, quantifying them, and coming up with effective interventions for them. No, I'd go further than that. I think if we're sensing, pick your word, because they're all imprecise psychological terms, burnouts, 
taken from a book in the 1969 and it's self-defined and it doesn't really yeah. have criteria. We try to give it criteria, but it's not as empiric as the things we like in our daily work. So if we're feeling moral distress, burnout, lack of resilience, what about the poor nursing staff? What about, because, you know, there is still something rather lovely and protected about being a doctor, even though, as you said 10 minutes ago, we have to deal with some pretty morally distressing and, and philosophically tricky stuff. Burnout's one of the terms I try and push back at, along with resilience and all these kind of... Buzzwords. That, which seem to me to put, make a pathology out of something that's an entirely human physiological process and try and dump the responsibility on the person who's experiencing it. So it's not burnout in the same way you get burnt out rheumatoid arthritis and your joints are destroyed. You still function perfectly well as a human being. Your heart still works, your lungs work and all that kind of stuff. What you've got is a complete and utter exhaustion of, prof- of professional engagement. You know, I think you know. I don't know how you define it or how you think about it, but we all know what it feels like. You get closer and closer and closer to the cynicism and the bitterness and all the other things that come with burnout. And I think we need better ways to define and measure it and track it. So we need to be able to say to people, "You seem to be about scoring ten percent on our scale. Crack on." Mm-hmm. When someone's getting up towards eighty, ninety percent, it's now time for you to have your twelve-month sabbatical. Here's your Fender guitar. You can come back when you you can play. You know, Van Morrison or whatever it might be. <laughs> stay away to heaven. Yeah. Or oh, you'd need six months off to get that guitar solo down and stay away to heaven. Yeah. I, I think you're on to something. Now, we've done neuro. We've gone through moral distress. We've gone through burnout. Let's come back to neuro. What's the future of neuro? As I said at the start, we've got to get better about systems and processes and removing variations in care. The next thing we've got to do is get better at trials. This is sort of slightly unsatisfactory trope that intensive care has been failed by the randomized controlled trial. I, I, you know, I, I, I don't know if I buy that. What, I think randomized controlled trials have been failed by intensive care. We, we haven't designed populations, interventions and outcome measures effectively to make use of the RCT model. And we need to start doing that. And, and to bring this full circle to augmented hypertension after subarachnoid hemorrhage, we, we, we need within that to find out what the important outcome measure is for patients who have that treatment. So when I become the custodian of shared decision-making for that treatment and can ask myself, would this patient want me to do this to him or her? I can say confidently in my own mind, well, at six months, I know they're more likely to get home rather than live in the residential care home were I to provide this treatment or not. And we're a long way from that in our randomized controlled trials. So for me, it's better definitions of outcomes and meaningful uh, meaningful clinical trials that tell us what to do with the treatments we have. And that work meaningful is doing a lot of heavy lifting, isn't it? It could be meaningful at a month, meaningful at six months, meaningful at 12 months. Yeah, and and it, and, and you make the very good point that meaningful to me is very different to meaningful to my mum, you know, and, and, uh, and we're, we're not near any of that stuff. You know, we're a long, long way away from that. I, again, I'm going off-piste here, but I, uh, meaningful in terms of trial design as well. I mean, I've long worried that a lot of trials are doomed to succeed. They are set up to be perfect, to be published. And there's almost, a, I'm really going off here now, but there's almost a Heisenberg uncertainty principle where the closer you get to a, a definite answer, the less clinically relevant it becomes. You know, I think that's one of the things that's hidden in plain sight. It's the elephant in the room for all of us when we read these trials. You think that's beautifully constructed. The patient demographics are clear. There's clear situation, separation between the groups. And there's a, there's a clear answer. And then you turn around and look in the bed space and none of it is applicable to the patient in front of you because it's never the question you wanted answering. It's a, it's a distilled, purified, filtered, crystallized 
question that doesn't ever sit within any of our intensive care units. Which brings us to pragmatic trials. Ask two people, get three opinions. You know, is that, you've said we need better neuro trials, you've got to walk before you can run. Is that how we start? I mean, the Brits are well known for pragmatic trials. And as your Canadian Commonwealth brethren, we love them. Because we think, yeah, that's fair enough. That that reflects the sort of patients I look after. I, I sort of sort of starting to stray out of areas of expertise now. I, I I don't know that I understand the difference between a pragmatic and a non-pragmatic trial well enough to comment in an articulate way on that. Yeah, it doesn't stop me, as you can imagine. <laughs> so what, what I might do is dodge it by coming yeah. coming back to the point that if if I have a clear intervention in my hand, if, if I were to invent, say, O'Leary's criteria, it has to be a single intervention in the bed space that if I modify in exclusively in the absence of any other changes to this patient in front of me, it has a predictable change in their outcome that the patient will know that outcome is important. And it's a very long sentence, but if we call that the criteria by which we should conduct clinical trials and you want that to be pragmatic, I'm all for that. You, you know what, I like the little bit of nuance you've added there, because it's also made me think, just a second, are there trials that are non-pragmatic, or what are yeah, the, yeah. the absolute yeah. antonyms of pragmatic? Nobody would ever design something that's entirely untranslatable and unusable. I think this is a discussion that needs to continue, but not right now. No, but thank you very much for having me. It's been oh, great. Until yeah. next time, what an absolute pleasure. Thank you for everything. <laughs>